0: Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you did create all things. Because of your will, they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, it's good on this Lord's Day just to pause and to be still from the busyness and distractions of the world and to be here with your people. You said where two or more are gathered in your name, Lord Jesus, that you're here in a special way. We know you're omnipresent. We know you never leave us nor forsake us. And yet you've given this incredible promise that in a special, unique way, you're here as your people gather. And so we are here to worship you. We are here to grow in our relationship with you. For you to have complete sway over us. I pray for all those listening who have never met you. I thank you for the spirit whom you promised would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Father, I can preach truth. I can impart it. And may the Holy Spirit impart truth today. And for those who know him and love him already, may our minds be renewed. May we, with a fresh perspective, come into this portion of scripture, humbly, teachably, that you might accomplish your purpose. Help me in this service for all who will listen to it later, and I pray for our meeting tonight, that you would be honored by it, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament, if you are new to the Bible. We just completed a series called God's Prophetic Schedule, And God willing, before summer's end, we'll begin a brand new book of the Bible that we will go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But before we start that new book, there are several issues that you've asked about, written me about, and just many that God has burdened me with that I think I need to address as your pastor. And if you were here last week, it was Pentecost Sunday, and we spoke on the church God founded. The day of Pentecost was a turning point. In the life of the church, for the very first time, the Spirit of God came to live within them. God said to Adam, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And the moment they ate, they died on the inside spiritually. They began to die on the outside physically. And if the problem's not rectified before you leave this life, you will die eternally. Three kinds of death in Scripture. But because of the cross, the intimacy that was lost in the Garden of Eden can be reestablished, and it has been since the day of Pentecost. And God did a wondrous work through this early church. They had none of the things that we think are so important. No buildings, no technical things like we have lights, cameras, slides, sound systems. No internet. No television, no radio, but they turned the world upside down. Why? Because they were transformed from the inside out. And so we saw that what began on Pentecost, it's called the baptism of the Spirit. It happens the moment you are converted. God wants to continue through the filling ministry of the Spirit. And so I told you that this is part two to last week's message. If you remember, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he gives it... Five times is recorded in the New Testament. And Luke's account, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You are not to go out and to try to win the first person to Jesus until you are empowered by the Spirit. There at the ascension on the Mount of Olives, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said you heard of from me, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Repeatedly in scripture, being filled with the Spirit and winning people to Christ are hand in glove experiences. In fact, that, as we'll see this morning is one of the marks, one of the marks that you are truly filled with the Spirit of God, that you are engaged in the process of attempting to bring people into the kingdom. So God not only wants us to live the good news, he wants us to share this good news with a lost world. Now when you come to John 15, it's an interesting portion of scripture. And I think we've read it so often that sometimes we just miss the wonder of the verses. One pastor a hundred years ago said this passage should be taught once a year by every pastor. It's been a few years since I've taught it. But I think it is so important that it needs to change us from the inside out. And if we are engaged in this process of making converts, disciples, and then doing discipleship, it's essential that we're filled with the Spirit. If you have children in your home, you not only want them to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you want them to be filled with the Spirit. I can promise you it is far easier to raise a child who is filled with the Spirit than one who is not. Now, just bringing it into the context here this morning, if you remember in John 13, Jesus commemorates Passover. It's Thursday night. The next day, hours away, he is going to be crucified on a cross. And all of the Passovers that for a few thousand years they had been observing for the first time, it is going, or at least for 1,400 years, for the first time, it is going to literally actually be fulfilled. Now, when we come to this section of Scripture, not only does he celebrate Passover, he institutes the Lord's table. And again, he's teaching some timeless lessons, not just to his disciples, but to us. In fact, when you come to the high priestly prayer, different from the prayer that is offered in Gethsemane, it's prayed along the way. They stop at one point, and he prays to the Father, and he prays not just for the disciples, but he prays for those who will believe that is through offs. And so the Lord Jesus, he's not panicked. He's not self-absorbed. He's interested in the needs of his disciples. At this point, Judas is gone. When we come here to the 15th chapter, there's 11 men who are left. And of course, he wants to build some timeless lessons here in the upper room. And of course, when he leaves the upper room, the last verse, of, uh, in, verse in, in chapter 14, he says, arise, let us go from here. So they celebrate the Lord's Supper. They sing a hymn, which, by the way, in many churches, every time they have the Lord's Supper, they finish it with a hymn. And between where the upper room is and the Garden of Gethsemane, they walk through a vineyard, a vineyard. And it's there that the Lord is going to illustrate some truths on what it means to abide in Him, or what we might call from the New Testament epistles, being a Spirit-filled Christian. There are many cranky, crotchety, grouchy believers who are really not filled with the Spirit. They are critical, all they can do is find problems in the church. They serve nowhere. They're not engaged in the Great Commission for the simple reason that while they may be indwelt by the Spirit, they're not filled with the Spirit. So, with that said, I want to begin by reading our passage, John chapter 15. Follow along in your Bible. I am the vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather him and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to me, my disciples, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There is a book put out a number of years ago called The Secrets of the Vine. Well, I want to tell you what Jesus unfolds here for us it's not a secret he wrote it here for us so that we can understand it and apply it and there's three timeless principles that picture the vine christ in our relationship to him the first one there in your outline concerns the vine and its background the vine and its background so we want to first think about the origin of this imagery the background of this imagery If you will notice here in verse one, Jesus states, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So the grapevine, of course, was a common sight in Israel. Some people jokingly say the palmetto tree is the South Carolina weed. It grows everywhere, it seems. Well, just as you see palmetto trees out in the woods and sprouting everywhere, the grapevine was all over Israel, those that were cultivated and planted and those that were just wild. And it was such a common piece of imagery in the first century of course the land of israel has dramatically changed from the day that christ walked on it i go to israel and people say it doesn't seem like it's a land overflowing with milk and honey i said read deuteronomy 28 to 30 and you'll learn why god judged the land physically but the vine was so common that you would see it engraved on statues. In fact, it was engraved on the imagery in the temple. Uh, They embossed it on coins. And Jesus here is describing himself as the true vine. And it's interesting because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as the vine. Now Christ, because of the delinquency and unfaithfulness of the Jewish nation, he says, I am the true vine. In fact, in every instance in the Old Testament where God uses this imagery to describe the Hebrew people, it's always because of their failure to produce good fruit. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and in verse 21, God said, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Jeremiah writes that in the day when the people of Israel were characterized by idolatry. So to contrast himself with Israel, Jesus said, I am the true vine, the one who brings good fruit, in contrast to degenerate Israel. The true vine, not the rebellious nation of, of the Jewish people, are, is the Lord Jesus himself. Now you remember, this is Thursday night. He's going to be crucified on Friday. On the day before, on Wednesday, Jesus used the imagery of a vineyard, a very controversial statement and parable that he tells to basically nudge the religious leaders of Israel. Listen to it. It's not recorded in John's Gospel, but both Matthew and Mark write of it. In Matthew 21, 33, he said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Now remember, John 15 happens on Thursday night. Jesus tells this on Wednesday to people who are present who are actually plotting, plotting his murder. And he applies it not simply to the nation at large, but specifically and pointedly to the religious leaders in the nation. And so he says in verse 43 of that chapter, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And then he states a few verses later, and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So it's against this background here in verse one that Jesus said, I am the true vine. Israel was God's vine. He took them out of the nation of Egypt. He carried them across the sands of the Sinai Desert. He planted them in the promised land. He entrusted to them a series of divinely appointed leaders and vine dressers. And time and time again, these vine dressers, they're called prophets. They mocked them, they persecuted them. They hurt them, they murdered them, and last of all, God sent his son, and they're planning to murder him. And so there could be only one result the visitation of God's wrath upon the nation. Since Israel was the custodian of the scriptures to be a light to the nations, because of their failure and rebelliousness, God in the interim is going to use a new ethne, a new nation, a new entity. It's called the church, an international community made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And in the place of the evil vine dressers, now God Himself will serve as the divine vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father. Is the vine dresser. The father is now the vine dresser, the gardener, the one who carries out this process of viticulture. He cultivates, he prunes, he works a vine, not literally but spiritually, as he works on us who are described here as the branches. So that's the vine and its background. Let's further think. Not just of the vine and its background, but about the vine and its branches. The vine and its branches. There's a no taking outline if you're new. It's right there in the bulletin. I should have said that. For those of you online, you can download the outline. Look now at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so the Lord Jesus tells us that the role of God the Father is twofold as the vine dresser. First, he cuts off. He takes away every branch that doesn't bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He prunes out the dead wood so that the living fruit in its branches can be more bountiful. And of course, those two words, in me, every branch in me, has created a lot of discussion and sadly a lot of eisegesis where we read into the scripture instead of exegeting reading out what God has said and so some have said well this is a in relationship to the people of Israel he just casts them off or some said the enemy refers to believers who have lost their salvation Well, number one, it seems highly unlikely that when Jesus uses this phrase, every branch in me, that he has the nation of Israel in mind because they were never really in the truest, broadest sense connected to him. And John underscores that truth in the prologue. He came to his own, but his own, meaning the Jewish people received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Not every Jew was in unbelief. The early church for the first several years was all Jewish. Acts 1-7 is all Jewish. But comparatively speaking, overall the nation turned against them. A second view that some have taken is that this is in reference to true Christians who had placed their faith in Christ, but then subsequently lost that salvation. That's an untenable position You cannot be faithful to the scripture. You cannot rightly divide the word of truth and come to that conclusion. The doctrine of eternal security, often dubbed once saved, always saved, is plainly underscored. Turn back just a few pages where you are. Go back to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 for a moment. Um, By the way, John's gospel, more than any of the four gospels, underscores the eternal security of the believer. He speaks that I'm writing for this purpose that men might find life in the Messiah and it's eternal life. He that believes in the Son has eternal life. You cannot lose something that is eternal. Eternal life is not something you get when you die. It's given the moment you believe. Look at verse 37 of chapter 6. All, you might want to circle that word, all. All that the Father gives me will come to me the one who comes to me i will certainly not cast out circle the word not for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will a second time the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me i lose nothing or none depending on your bible circle that word but raise it up on the last day For this is the will, a third time, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds or sees or looks at the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. He gives an irrefutable promise to all who come to Him. He came to earth, He said, not to do His own will, but to perform the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single person, without exception, there's no leakage in these verses who looks to the Son and then believes in him, will absolutely be raised up on the last day. And so for Jesus not to raise someone up, who has looked to the Son and believed in him, for Jesus not to raise someone up on the last day, would be to disobey the will of the Father. He said, that's not my purpose. I didn't come to disobey the will of the Father, but to obey the will of the Father. And so the Lord Jesus is assuring us that when God saves us, You cannot lose that salvation. He is underscoring your security in the Lord. People say, well, if I believe that, I'd go out and do anything I'd want to. Well, listen, when you're born again, God gives you a new want to on the inside. There's a new proclivity for the things of God. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away and everything has become new. Now, most of our dear brothers who falsely teach that you can lose your salvation have never really thought about the ramifications of the position that they have stated. Number one, to say that you can lose your salvation just based on these verses is to call Jesus a liar because he said every single one will be raised up. Number two, not only is he a liar, he is a sinner. Because he said he didn't come to disobey the Father's will, but to obey the Father's will. And the Father's will is that everyone, without exception, not excluded, will be raised up. And not only are you calling him a liar and a sinner, you're calling him weak, that he is incapable and unable to do that which God has committed to the Lord Jesus. I don't think most people who deny the eternal security of the believer are consciously saying, Jesus is weak, he's a liar, and he's a sinner. But that fundamentally is exactly what they are saying when they come to that conclusion. So our Lord makes an unequivocal promise here speaking of our security. So I think the confusion, go back to John 15, when we, is when we equate the words in me with the Apostle Paul's words in Christ, and they're not equal phrases. Christ is using the metaphor here of the vine to teach that every person who professes to be a disciple, who claims to be a branch, is not necessarily a true follower. Some people appear to be connected to Christ, but they're really not. And so scripture must interpret scripture. And so the meaning of every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, becomes very clear. Do you remember the parable of the lamp? You might want to put Luke 8.18 out in the margin. Jesus spoke about a man with a lamp, and he doesn't set it under a basket, but he sets it up high in the house so that it will dispel the light. And, and then he draws some application after the parable. He says in Luke 8.18, therefore, take care how you listen. He has just also given right before the parable of the lamp, the parable of the sower, Take care how you listen, for whoever has to him shall more be given. More what? More desire to hear. More understanding of what you hear. Take care how you listen, for whoever has to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks or seems to have, it shall be taken away from him. Now, the Pharisees thought they had much. They thought they were righteous. Jesus compared them to whitewashed tombs, that they were full of dead men's bones. And there are people who think they have salvation, who appear outwardly to have salvation, but there's no real evident fruit to show that they have salvation. You're not saved by bearing fruit, but if you are saved, you will bear fruit. Put out in the margin, Romans eleven sixteen 16 to 24. When Israel is compared to an olive tree, the Apostle Paul there in that passage says that some of the branches in the olive tree that were not saved would be broken off. Why? So Gentiles could be grafted in. 9, 10, and 11 deal with the nation of Israel. 9 with Israel's election, how he selected them out of all the nations of the world. 10, why they rejected their Messiah, why they are in unbelief. But 11 how God has not abandoned Israel, that God who loved them, as he said in the Old Testament, with an eternal love, and as he completes chapter eight, he says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and nine, 10, and 11 become an illustration of God's commitment to people when he sets his affection on them. And so here Jesus is using an analogy to describe an apparent connection that was not genuine case in point found in the chapter itself is Judas, actually in the chapter prior to it. Judas is a branch, but he's not a living branch. He's dead wood. And of course, by the time you come to the 15th chapter, he's gone. There's only 11 that are present. In fact, Jesus underscores fruitfulness is the indelible mark of someone who is really converted. And we need to hear that in this day of soft evangelicalism, of people all around who say they are born again, but whose lives have not been changed. Listen to these words, John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Don't say you love Jesus if your life is not characterized by keeping his commandments. The one who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. In the same chapter, two verses later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Likewise in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus said in Matthew 7:17 7, Even so every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. He doesn't say that a true genuine branch can't sin. He has already dealt with sins in the Sermon on the Mount, but he is saying that fundamentally if a tree is healthy, it doesn't bear rotten fruit, it bears good fruit. And if you have bad trees in the orchard, you cut it down and you use them for firewood. They're to be burned. And so he will conclude that section of scripture by saying, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so then you will know them by their fruit. Here is the principle that runs all the way through both sides of the Bible is that if someone really knows the living God, they bear fruit, and especially true under the new covenant. Granted, there are some Christians, it's kind of hard to find their fruit. They're like lingering grapes. They might look like dried raisins. But if you are born again, there will be fruit. Even in the Corinthian church in the opening verses of 11, I praise you. Why? Because you kept the traditions. There are some things that they did and gave evidence of new life. So it's impossible to think that any branch that is truly connected to the vine could bear no fruit. You either bear fruit or you don't. You're either alive on the inside or you are dead. By the way, for those who have said that this represents a Christian who has lost their salvation, they're never consistent. It says far more than they want it to say. Because they typically almost always teach, if you lose your salvation, you can potentially get it back. And so I will meet people who say, well, I got saved when I was 15, and then I lost my salvation in college, but I got saved again. You don't get saved again. You're not born again and again and again. You're born again from above once, just as there's only one physical birth, there's only one spiritual birth. But if we affirm once saved, always saved, based on verse six that we'll come to in a few moments, you'd have to say once lost, always lost. Because the end is the fire for these branches that are not connected. And so while there is fruit, God wants to build more fruit. That's the point of the passage. There's a progression here. He goes from no fruit to fruit to more fruit, to much fruit. I have those all underlined in my Bible. And that's where the father comes in. He is the vine dresser. And so first he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. And we'll see their end in a second. But second, we learn that he trims or he prunes or literally, if you have the new American standard, you'll note out on the margin, he cleanses every branch. And that's important. I think the literal rendering will be actually helpful as we walk a little bit further into the text. He cleanses every branch that does bear fruit. Why? So it can be more fruitful. And so Jesus says here in the second half of verse two, in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. And a vineyard fruitfulness is absolutely imperative. That's the whole point as to why a vineyard even exists. And so the pruning process is to get rid of unproductive growth. It's essential for maximum fruitfulness. Now, please note, God is the one who does the pruning. He says, my father is the vine dresser. The branch doesn't prune itself It comes from the hand of God and God has many creative ways in which he can prune us. And I might say here that if you are a part of the true vine, you are a true branch and it's not your job to prune other people. Now, God may use you when you share the word of God because it's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword, but it's the spirit of God behind the word of God that is doing the pruning, not you. So don't play junior Holy Spirit. Don't go around saying, hey, I see this thing in your life and you know, I need to prune this out. God is the vine dresser. And again, there's fruit, that he is grooming so that it can produce more fruit, that the vital sap might have more entrance away from the suckers and into the live growth. And so God alone is the great vine dresser. And as the pruner, he will see sins, he will see shortcomings, he'll see that sucker growth that needs to be cut out. Now I'm told that in a vineyard, It can take upwards of two to three years before that person who's been trained is given the title of being a pruner. Why? Because it's one of the most important positions in the whole enterprise. I had a tree that I scorched in my backyard with uh, little bonfires that I have, my brush piles, and, and it killed some of the bottom branches. But this particular tree I pruned incorrectly. Someone said, oh, just cut off those dead branches. Big mistake, the way I pruned it, it killed the whole tree. And now there's just one little green sprout at the top, and that will probably be gone in a couple of weeks. No, it's critical that you know how to cut, where to make the cut, how much to cut, and precisely how to do it. And God is interested in that because he's not interested simply in the quantity of fruit, but the quality of the fruit. He wants to prune you for your good and for ultimately his glory. Eight times, I have them all underlined, eight times in the chapter the word fruit appears. Three times in verse 2, twice here in verse 4, and then once in verse 5, in verse 8, and then down here in verse 16. So God is committed to shaping Christ's character in us. And sometimes the process can be painful. The branches, when they're pruned, they seem to scream. We say, God, use me, prune me, make me more fruitful. And as soon as he starts the process, we begin to gripe and bellyache and to complain. But God is the divine surgeon. And he knows how to prune us. Well, how does he do this? Well, first and foremost, he uses the word of God. And so in Hebrews four, the word of God is described like a sword. Many times when I am pouring over the scripture hour upon hour upon hour, I find myself bleeding all over the study. Because God is taking his divine scalpel and applying it to my life. And so sometimes the word of God is pictured as a sword. Sometimes it's pictured as a mirror. A mirror that we look into, and so James speaks about a man, an on air, in deference to a woman, a man who looks in the mirror, who tends to just glance and walk away. Now, I know we have a lot of girly men in the day that we live in, but typically a man doesn't spend hours in front of a mirror. God has created that uh, desire to look a little bit longer than we do as men and a woman, and we're glad they do. Look, I've come to church before with shaving cream on my ear. Um women tend to look. And he said, don't look like in the mirror like a man looks. Look intently. Many people, they read the Bible and 10 minutes later, if their life depended on it, they couldn't tell you what they read. Because they're like a man, they've just glanced in the mirror. They haven't taken a long, hard look. Sometimes God uses his word. Sometimes he has many ways in which to spank us from heaven. Sometimes it's physical, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, some of you are asleep or died. That's the ultimate divine spanking in the pruning process. Sometimes the pruning is financial, like in Malachi 3. Sometimes it's relational, like in Galatians 6.1. God knows what he needs to do to get our attention. And so God sometimes allows us to go into trials. It has nothing to do, you know, we think of the word discipline only negatively, like God has taken us to the woodshed. Many times, even in the book of Hebrews, it has positive aspects to it. You are right in the center of God's will, obeying him as much as you know how to obey him, and he's disciplining you. Sometimes there is corporal punishment and the raising of children sometimes they're doing everything right but there's other aspects of discipline as you shape their character as you teach them different skills and how to work hard etc etc and so many christians pray that god will make them more fruitful and then when the trials come we don't do what james says consider it all joy my wife spoke on friday night to the women of the church and i was in my office and i had a chance to listen to it and she said. God hates belly aching. He hates griping. And indeed, he does. God hates it when we complain. A nation that is in a downward spiral are those who give no praise and no thanks. And an individual who is in a downward spiral is a person who is not filled with thanks. And if my heart is gripy, I know I've got to pause and think and get quiet before the Lord and get some things that are in order. And so let the trial have its perfect result, that you might be complete and perfect, lacking in absolutely nothing. Look at verse 3 now. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're already clean. That is to say you're already saved. And on two occasions in John's gospel, he used that word clean to describe saved. Not an hour before in chapter 13, remember he got down and he's washing the feet of the disciples and Peter says, not me, Lord. You know, you know, if I don't wash your feet, you have no participation with me. And then give me a bath. And then he says, no, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Once you've been saved, once you have been cleaned, once bathed, always saved, you don't need salvation's bath again. But as you walk through this world, your feet will get dirty. Judas never had that salvation's bath. He had an outward connection to the vine, but it was not genuine. He who is bathed needs only to wash his spiritual feet. And so he is describing here the need for this connectiveness as he's going to underscore with this illustration and this vineyard. These 11 are already clean. They're already saved. We call that justification. But he is focusing now on this process we call sanctification. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so verse 3 is not speaking of sanctification, it's speaking of conversion. But now he's going to move past conversion into that sanctifying process where God is shaping us into the image of Christ. And notice here, he says, you are clean, why? Because of the word I have spoken to you. What word did he speak? Well, he was with them for three and a half years. He taught them the scriptures. They opened the Old Testament prophets. Not to mention, he gave them new revelation that God would later bring to their minds that they would record in Scripture. But understand the basis by which a person is made clean is the Word, the instrumental cause of salvation is the Bible. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. No one in any time in history has ever been saved apart from the Bible. Even before it was written down on parchment, in many portions and in many ways, God spoke. But the word that was used is brought what brought about conversion. You know, a lot of Christians say, well, I just want to live my life in such a way that people will see my life and become a Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth. No one can become a Christian by seeing your life. Now, that might give you a platform in which to share Christ, but it's not your life that has the power of conversion. Two parents in physical birth, two parents in spiritual birth. You're born of the Spirit, and you're born of the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so even in the parable of the sower of a man who goes out and sows seed, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, the seed is the word of God. And the degree to which you believe that and understand that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God is the degree that you will use scripture Now come this fall, as we go to the next handout in discipleship, I'm gonna give you 100 non-critical, non-negotiable, I mean, absolutely critical, non-negotiable passages every believer should know. And when I say passages, I'm not saying verses, like I don't say memorize Ephesians 2.8, I'll say memorize Ephesians 2.8 and 9. So sometimes there's a cluster of verses, but if you wanna start somewhere, start with the booklet, would you like to know God as your friend? Because every one of those verses is on the list. Those are just like rock-bottom truths that you will use in personal evangelism. Look, you're not always going to have a Bible with you, and you need to have some Scripture hidden in your heart, because if you believe it's the sword that the Spirit uses to bring about conversion, then you will start using the Bible. And some of us have seen very few people ever want to Christ for the simple reason that we don't have much Scripture to use, or we don't use it. So they're already clean, and so he says to them here in verse 4, because he's also engaged in the sanctifying process, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God also to grow us, like newborn babes hunger for the pure milk of the Word, so you may grow. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So as the Lord Jesus addresses these who are already clean, already saved, he still wants them to know in this process of sanctification from the human side how they can be as fruitful as possible. And so here's a command. It's an imperative. Abide in me. Uh, The new NASB renders it, remain in me. It's a word that describes someone who is sticking close and he wants us to understand dependence on the vine by the branch is absolutely essential to real fruit. There must be a moment by moment dependence on Christ, the Spirit of Christ. So, technically, the New Testament says you're indwelt by the Father, you're indwelt by the Son, you're indwelt by the Spirit. But the Spirit is the one who is highlighted in the indwelling of the believer. And it is the Spirit who helps us, who equips us. Wait until you're clothed with the Spirit from on high to carry out God's plan. And so the branch, independently of the vine, does not sweat and strain to produce fruit. No, it just relies on the vine that the sap might flow through and the fruit is produced. Now, I find it very interesting that the Lord never commands us to bear fruit. But he does command us here to abide. He is saying, when you abide, the fruit will follow. Now, what does it mean to abide? Well, in the New Testament, the idea of abiding is equivalent to being filled with the Spirit in the epistles. It speaks of a dependent life, an abandoned life. So from our side of the equation, we're talking about dependence, total dependence. Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to help me. I need you to equip me to live your life through me in this day. We come to Christ not just for pardon. We come to him for power. And so Paul will say to the church at Colossus, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him. How did you receive Christ? If you've been saved, there was a point in your life where you admitted you were spiritually bankrupt, that not a single good work could help contribute to your salvation. And if you still think along those lines, it just means you haven't been saved. Either God saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he doesn't save you at all. You come in a bankrupt state. Lord Jesus, I can do nothing. I put my full weight in the gospel, the death bearer, and the resurrection of Christ. And the same way, if you receive him, now walk in that way. Lord Jesus, I cannot do anything worthwhile for the kingdom of God. And again, we tend to um, separate. Things over here that are spiritual, things that are not spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. Cutting the grass is spiritual. Changing the diaper, cleaning the dishes, going to work. It's all spiritual. And we're to bear fruit in the midst of those things. Lord Jesus, I need you. Even today, I come into this pulpit every time, and I'm just overwhelmed with the sense, I need you, Lord. You say, weren't you filled with the Spirit when you came in? Yes. Yes. But I need that special touch. I think it's interesting in Acts 4. Those men and women are in the upper room. They're praying. It says they were filled with the Spirit. They pour their hearts out to God. And God fills them and he uses a different word. For a new task where they need boldness and courage. In the midst of persecution that is growing in the church. And so sometimes you're you're walking with the Lord, you're filled with the Spirit, but all of a sudden you have an opportunity. This person is asking you questions and you send that prayer gram up to God like Nehemiah does. Lord Jesus, help me. I need you to speak and minister through me. Whatever the situation is. And my friend, if you do it in your own power, it may look like fruit, but it is fake. It is plastic fruit and there's nothing worthwhile done for the kingdom that is done independently of him. And so many of the images that God gives, there's actually seven images the New Testament gives to describe Christ's relationship to the church. Most of us know that we are the body, he's the head, we are the sheep, he's the shepherd, here he is the vine, and we are the branches. And a member of the body, well, if if the head is cut off, it will immediately die. And if somehow we are separated from the leadership of Christ, we will not bear fruit. If a sheep wants to get the benefits and the provision and the protection of the shepherd, he must stay close. And even so, while it's natural for a branch in and of itself, to abide in the vine, we have to make some conscious decisions. We have to depend upon him moment by moment. That brings me to the third point. So there's the vine in its background, there's the vine in its branches. Third, I want us to think about the vine in its bounty. The vine in its bounty. Look now, if you will, beginning in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus is very clear that the condition for fruitfulness is that of abiding. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And again, this word meno means remain. It's speaking not of our union with Christ, but our communion with Christ. And so on the one hand, the Bible speaks of our relationship with God and our fellowship with God. And so you may be asking, how precisely do we abide? Well, number one... If you are to abide, as verses 9 and 10 will indicate, and we'll see that in a moment, you must obey. And when you don't obey, you must confess your sin, Christian sin. If anyone say we, we don't sin, he's making God to be a liar. We sin, and so 1 John 1, 9 has nothing to do, of course, with salvation. It has everything to do with conversion. If we confess our sins. He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us. It's not a salvation verse. You can confess your sin till you're blue in the face and he won't forgive the first sin. He's writing to people who are already saved. I'm writing these things to you that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father, with his son. And so that intimacy can only be maintained if there's no unconfessed sin. There must be obedience. And when there's failure, we must bring it before the Lord. Apart from me, he says, plainly, clearly, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nothing genuine. Nothing of eternal value. Nothing that would truly glorify the Lord. And so we can claim that we're spiritual, but if we are not intimately in fellowship with the Lord, we're not really bearing fruit. And again, there's a progression here. We're under a delusion if we think that we can produce fruit in and of ourselves. And so as you receive Christ, so you walk in him. And so Paul can say in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if the Lord is strengthening you, you can do those things that he's destined for you to do. God wants this abiding life to become an abundant life. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And again, there's a progression here in verse two. I have underlined no fruit and in fruit in, uh, to more fruit. Uh, in, in verse five, in, in verse eight, much fruit. So there's no fruit, there's fruit, There's more fruit in verse five and there's much fruit in verse eight. And that's the growth process. Look at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Again, he's not talking about losing salvation. That's impossible. For that matter, some not wanting to teach that you can lose your salvation have handled this passage differently. They say, well, this is the judgment seat of Christ. You know, where Paul says he takes all your works as a believer in heaven, you're already there. And he uh, tests them with fire and the bad works are burned up. No, he's not talking about rewards. He's not talking here about um, works as such. Look at the pronouns that are used. You might want to circle them. He uses the word anyone in verse 6. Then he uses the word he. And then the twice repeated word them and they. This is not the language of eternal judgment. This is not the believer's judgment. I mean, uh, this is not the language of the believer's judgment. This is the language of eternal judgment. This is the language when an unbeliever is forever removed from the Lord. People who are outwardly religious, but inwardly there's no life. Jesus made this statement. Remember, he said, look, if you're really a true follower with the faith of Abraham, then you'd live like Abraham. They answered and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Likewise, John the Baptist spoke to those who were outwardly religious, but inwardly deficient. He said, you brood, it's the Greek word, geema, you children, you, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring food in, fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so when Jesus began this talk to, just by describing himself as a true vine, remember he's contrasting himself with fruitless, delinquent, unbelieving Israel. And he makes it clear in verse six that if a person is not rightly related to the vine, if they don't bear fruit, what happens? They are cast and thrown into the fire and they are burned. And by the way, this was common imagery in the mind of Hebrew people in Jesus's day. In Ezekiel, a well-read, well-worn book by the Jews, and if you know Ezekiel, you'll know why. You might even say that Ezekiel 15.8 was almost there, John 3.16. Let me read it to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Lord, and God is in all caps, so Adonai, Yahweh, bringing both words together, God's power, God's relationship. Thus says the Lord God, as the wood, of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel. So I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem." So the people in Jesus' day, they knew this passage, and just as the vine pictures the people of Israel in Ezekiel's day, even so Jesus is teaching the same fate for those who say they are branches. What is the end game? They are burned in the fire. Now think about it, Judas, he appeared to be a branch. He walked with Jesus and the disciples for three and a half years. God even allowed miracles to be done through Judas, which I always think is fascinating, but it's certainly not... something that is dismissed, because in Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of people who never knew him, who did signs, wonders, and miracles. They were empowered by a different source. But Judas, at this point, he thought the cause had collapsed. And so what does he do? He, he flees him for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to show where they can find Jesus, that they might arrest him and kill him. But here, fire, again, is a clear picture of judgment. And think about vine wood. That's what you do with vine wood that's dead. It's good for nothing. You can't build a piece of furniture from it. You can't even build a a hook in which to hang your hat on. It's good for nothing. It's only good for the brush pile or for kindling to light a fire. And even so, those who profess to be attached to the vine but really are not, in the end, it is a life of judgment. You say, well... How can I tell if I am really abiding in Christ as a believer? Is there some feeling that I get? Well, um, let's think our way through that. If you're abiding in Christ, according to verse 2, one, you'll experience the Father's pruning. Has the Father ever pruned you? Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He's not, again, just speaking about the woodshed. He's talking about God shaping and building your life. He doesn't discipline the pagan. You say, I thought God loves everyone. He loves everyone, but we're his beloved and we are beloved of God. Those whom the Lord loves, who has that special relationship, he disciplines. So are you being pruned by the father? Secondly, are you seeing prayers answered? That would be a sign that as a believer, you are abiding in Christ. We'll see that in a moment in verse seven. Um, and then as verses 9 and then verse 12 and verse 13 indicate, if I'm abiding, I will have a deepening love for Christ and for his people. And as verse 11 indicates, I will experience the joy of the Lord. Those are all aspects of abiding in Christ. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what fruit is Uh, referring to in this passage. But again, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Here's a chart. Certainly, you could say it's the fruit of the Spirit. For this fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, those nine qualities. Not the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit singular of the Spirit is a major distinction. You can't say, well, I have love, but I lack patience. I've got joy, but I lack kindness. No, the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. There's certainly that aspect of fruit, and that's where most people want to stop because there's a certain comfort level in that. Because it's sometimes uh, easy to say, well, I've got some of these evidences, so I must be abiding in Christ. But there's also the fruit of a convert. We'll see that in just a moment. The fruit of introducing people to Christ. When you come down to verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So there's that aspect of fruit. And again, God uses us in different ways. But if I am abiding in Christ, I care about the things God cares about. What's the purpose statement of the Son of Man? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if we're not engaged in seeking those who are lost, we're not really abiding in Christ. Some of you had opportunity this week. You, you gave a word of testimony in honor of the Lord or, or you invited someone to church or you listened to their need and you showed care. And some of you maybe even had a chance to quote a verse of scripture or maybe even to walk someone through the plan of salvation. But if you're not engaged in that, I meet professionals, paid pastors who can't remember the last time they tried to introduce someone to Christ. You don't do it just from the pulpit. That's a small portion of it. As you walk in the way, as God gives you opportunity repeatedly, habitually. If I'm abiding in Christ, here's another fruit, bring it up. Come on, here we go the fruit of good works. Colossians 1.10, there's a changed lifestyle that Colossians speaks of. Again, you're not saved by works, but if you're saved, you do good works, and those works will broaden and deepen. Here's another one. Bring up the one from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.5, the fruit of praise. He speaks there of uh, those who give thanks to God, that that's, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Do you give praise To God, that is the fruit of the lips, giving thanksgiving to him. Do do you do that? Look again, if I find myself grumbling, i got to do some internal checks. God hates grumbling. That's what's characterizing this nation. No praise, no thanks, no interest, and we're in a downward spiral. But again, the believer who's abiding in Christ, he wants to give thanks and praise to the living God. And so here it is again, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's another consequence of abiding in Christ, it's answered prayer. And by the way, this is is not an unconditional promise, this is a conditional promise. There are some promises that God's going to do no matter what. This is a conditional promise, two halves to it. You must abide in him, and his word must abide in you, and then you can ask whatever you want, and God will do it. Why? Because when you are walking with the Lord and his word is filling your heart, then your asking will be in sync with his teaching. But a superficial commitment to scripture doesn't meet this. Look, if the last time you opened your Bible was last Sunday, don't fool yourself you have a superficial commitment to the Holy Scripture. Oh, but people will read their social media page and spend hours on that little handheld computer, but not in God's Word. That's a superficial commitment to the word of God. And this promise is conditional on me abiding in Christ and his word abiding in me. You know what I find fascinating? We'll cover this in the fall when we come to the next handout in the discipleship course. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. It's 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 a verb. It's a command. It's an imperative. And then there's a series of participles that run down through chapter five into chapter six that give the marks of someone who is filled with the spirit. When you come to Colossians 3.16, he gives a similar command, but slightly different. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, but he gives the identical participles that are found in Ephesians. The exact same results of being filled with the Spirit and letting God's word richly dwell within you. Why? Because they fit hand and glove. Now, I realize... Someone can have gone to seminary and have gotten a master's or a PhD or, in theology, and they can be as carnal as can be. I had some professors in seminary that were just out of fellowship with God. Most of them were not. You can have all this knowledge and be out of fellowship with the Lord. And so there's this balance. My heart is clean and it's clear, and we'll discuss that in a moment. And God's word is infiltrating my heart And then, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The words by this are the first two words in the Greek text, which causes you to go back and say, by what? By letting his word abide in me, and I abide in him. By this, New American Standard 78 rendered it that way. By this is my Father glorified, and I think that's helpful, because it. Forces you to stop and say, well, what does he mean by this? And it forces me to go back to the previous verse. By this is my Father glorified. When you are abiding in him and his word is abiding in you and you ask God the Father to do something and he answers it and change is brought about. That is to the glory of God. Now, what's the motivation for doing all this? Underscored here in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now those words are so familiar, it's easy to run over them quickly and to miss the sense of wonder. Notice what it does not say. He doesn't say, I love you like a mother loves her baby. He doesn't say, I, I love you the way a husband loves his wife. How much does Jesus love us? He says, as much as the Father loves him. And how much does the Father love him? Without measure, without beginning, without end. In fact, in the high priestly prayer, again, he underscores it, that the Father loves you as much as he loves his only Son. And when you understand that incredible new position you have in Christ, this grace teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldliness and to live holy in this present age. And so the only way that Jesus can paint the picture of how much He loves us It's to bring us back to the fact that he loves us as much as the Father loves him. Think about this group of men. Peter, he's about ready to deny him that evening. Thomas, there in the upper room, he's full of doubts. Philip, he's wanting Jesus to do immortal and invisible things to show himself as the Savior and Messiah of the world to have his kingdom now. Thaddeus, Think about him, he's he wondering why Jesus won't show himself to the whole world. Matthew, he is a tax collector by trade, a ripoff artist. Simon the Zealot, he's one of these nationalists who, who wants to overthrow Rome. James and John, these are the two first half cousins of Jesus, they want to sit at his right hand and his left hand the sons of thunder. Here's a group of guys who seem to have all kinds of inconsistencies and Jesus is saying, I love you as much as the father loves me. Wow. I love you that much, guys. And so John will later write, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Verse 10. And to love him is to obey him. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I keep my father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you want to live in the sphere of the love of the Father, then obey. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. Disobedience, it always brings sorrow. Obedience brings the joy of the Lord. And we're not talking about happiness. Pagans can have happiness. We're talking about a fruit of the Spirit. Full joy. And think about Jesus. He's headed towards Gethsemane. He's headed towards the cross. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and its shame. And he wants us to know joy, and he wants us to know that joy is when we walk closely with him and obey him. And when you begin to experience this disclosure from the Lord where he reveals himself to you, where you have this inner joy, you think, why on earth would I ever want to go back to the world? I told you last week that there's whole denominations that want to try to replicate Pentecost. You can no more replicate Pentecost than you can replicate Calvary. To replicate Pentecost, you'd have to have real tongues, real 15 languages and dialects. You'd have to have that noise that was like a cyclone outside but there was no wind you'd have to have the literal flames that rested on each person you can't duplicate that any more than you can duplicate calvary but you can enjoy it i can enjoy the benefits of the cross and i can enjoy the benefits of pentecost as the spirit of god fills me each and every hour so let's ask three questions in closing by way of application number one Are you being pruned by God? Are you being pruned by God? If you are, just remember, it can be painful. And there are times when you feel like you're bleeding more sap than you're producing fruit. But just know there are seasons to pruning. Just as there are seasons that change the trees, there are seasons that God brings to change his children. And if you're under the knife today, don't despair. Jesus reminded us that God will accomplish his purpose, and you'll be like a tree, the psalmist said, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Secondly, I would ask, are you filled with the Spirit? You can know that you are abiding in Christ. You can know that you're filled with the Spirit, first and foremost, if you desire to be filled with the Spirit. There are some Christians, they live the Christian life, and they say, oh, this is fantastic. It's great being a Christian. They start walking down the road for a little bit of time, and they say, oh, this, you know, this is pretty tough. And then they come to the point, they say, this is impossible. I can't do it. And that's when we are really in a position to be filled with the Spirit, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you have an earnest desire to please the Lord, or are you with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? You have a divided heart this morning? Or do you have a hunger for holiness? The one who hungers for a righteous lifestyle, that person will be filled. He may be resident in your life. He wants to be president. He may be dormant there, the Spirit of God. He wants to be dominant. He wants to fill you. Now, when you were saved, you had the baptism of the Spirit. Paul says, for by one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body, made to drink of one Spirit. So don't let some of our dear Pentecostal brothers tell you, if you've been saved, you need the baptism of the Spirit. They're all confused. Just as they are confused that teaching you can lose salvation. This chart might help you to distinguish between spirit baptism, which has happened to every believer, and spirit filling that is repeated experience. Spirit baptism happens only once. It's assumed to be true. In fact, Paul makes it clear. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. And so traditional historical Pentecostal doctrine said, first you get saved, later you get the Spirit. And they keep changing their doctrine because they've been challenged over the decades. I did my doctoral thesis on this. They're all confused and discombobulated. Look, I love them, but when you do theology by experience, you come up confused, and that's why the majority of people who come from those denominations don't even know how to be saved. Yet they've had all kinds of experiences, but they don't even know what the gospel is because experiences usurp the role and authority of Scripture. Spirit baptism never happened before Pentecost. This is a New Testament Unique thing, whereas being filled with the Spirit it occurred, slides up there, uh, it occurred in the Old Testament. In other words, there were people in the Old Testament who the Spirit of God would come upon for a moment and accomplish a purpose. There's about 500 max total, as we cover in the course on pneumatology. Uh, spirit baptism is true of all believers, whereas spirit baptism is not necessarily true. Spirit baptism cannot be undone. Whereas spirit filling can be lost. You may be indwelt by the spirit today, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're filled with the spirit. Spirit baptism results in a new position. You're a member of the body of Christ. Whereas being filled with the spirit results in new power. Now, understand that as Christians, after Pentecost, if someone is saved, they're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. That was on this side of the Spirit where Jesus had to wait to be baptized by the Spirit because it had not yet happened. But God does command the church to be filled with the Spirit. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a loss of control. But be filled with the Spirit. And so the comparison is clear. A drunk person is controlled by an inner substance, alcohol, and it affects his walk and his talk. the believer who has the spirit in him when he's filling him, he influences your walk and your Talk in any sin, any unconfessed sin in your life will prevent that from happening. And so, there's four commands that God underscores how we are to be filled with the Spirit. Number one: Don't grieve the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. By the way, remove the word "it" out of your vocabulary. There's no such word in reference to the Spirit of God. He's a He. He's as much God as the son or the father. And this word grieve is a love word. You know, you only are grieved when when you love someone. The neighbor's kids might have disappointed me or bothered me. But if my children did something that was wrong, it grieved me. And when you're one of his and you do something that's wrong, the spirit within you is grieved. And the solution is First 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. And so no unconfessed sin in your life. And so a mark that you are growing in your walk with the spirit of God is you keep short accounts with God. And you don't use that simply as you know a parachute, as a reason to sin. Well, I can just confess it. Little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Secondly, we're not to quench the Spirit. You quench the Spirit when you're unwilling to do that which God commands you to do in the positive realm. Do not quench the Spirit because you're throwing cold water on Him. So you come here and you praise the living God. A, a brother in another church said to me, he said, I have no voice. I said, just... just Just read the words. You can praise God that way. I get it. But if you come and you're just sitting in your chair and, "Mm, mm, 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 mm," you know, I don't really want to sing. God commands you to sing. Make music in your heart to one another and to the Lord. God will give some of you an opportunity this week to share the gospel. Oh, that's not my call. You know, that's why we hire you, preacher. No. It is your call. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you're called to do the work of an evangelist. So when you don't do those things in the positive realm that God has commanded you to do, you are quenching the spirit. What's the solution? Romans 12:1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God, here I am. I'll go anywhere, do anything, say anything. I'm totally yours. Yielded. If you're not grieving the spirit, if you're not quenching the spirit, then you can by faith be filled with the Spirit. Here's a promise, and this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we have asked, then we know that we have had, we have the request we've asked from him. In other words, if I'm asking God for something that I know absolutely is his will, is it his will for me to be filled with the Spirit? He commands it in Ephesians five eighteen and verse 17, before it he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. So, assuming I'm not grieving or quenching, I can by faith trust the Spirit of God to fill me. And so, when you've been grieving or quenching, you should get that clear with the Lord. Then ask Him to fill you. You say, Do you look for a feeling? No. When you lead someone to Christ and you say, Well, did you pray that? Yes. Did you mean it? Yes. Are you saved? I don't know. Are they saved? No, they're not. Why? Because they didn't believe what God said. You ask God to fill you with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit? I don't know. I don't feel any different. I didn't speak in tongues. I, I don't get chill bumps up and down my back. Are they filled with the Spirit? No, they're not. Why? Because they didn't move by faith. They did not take God at his word. Don't grieve the Spirit. The solution, First John 9 do Don't quench the Spirit. The solution is present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Third, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so God brings the human and the divine aspects of the spirit filled life together. When I walk, one foot is in the air, one foot is on the ground. I am dependent moment by moment. And so when I depend on God like I depend on air to survive, I will be a spirit filled Christian. The fourth command in the New Testament is to sow to the Spirit. And there in the book of Galatians, he said, sow to the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. How do you sow to the Spirit? Romans twelve two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. You enmesh yourself in Scripture. You're struggling with an issue in your life. You say, well, I'm not grieving or crunching him, but I still seem short. Find Scripture that deals with that issue and hide it. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart I have sought you. There it is, yielded, no grieving, no quenching. With all my heart I have sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden, treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. What happens? When temptation comes, you'll be able to do what Jesus did in Luke 4 Matthew 4. You'll be able to quote scripture. You'll be able to take those thoughts and carry them obediently to the Lord, every thought captive to him. Why? Because when you're filled with the spirit, the spirit of God will have freedom to bring to the forefront of your mind the scripture that you've hid there. And then it becomes much more of a willful, conscious sin. Now to block out the scripture that God has brought to the forefront of my mind in order to do what the devil is trying to convince me to do. Third and uh, finally, are you a real branch or a fake branch? Are you a real or a fake? All true Christians will bear fruit. So are you a real believer or simply religious? You know, most people who identify with Christianity think they're a real branch. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it in Matthew 7. In those who identify with him, he reminded them that most are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Oh, but I did this in your name and that in your name. I never knew you. Never had a relationship with you. Look, if you're a fake branch, you don't have to be. Christ Jesus came to save you. He'll receive you today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to ask you maybe before the day is over to get alone with God and ask Him if you've been grieving Him for His cleansing. Ask Him if you've been quenching Him. Yield every area of your life to the Lord. Tell Him that you want to learn to depend upon Him as a man depends on the foot that's on the ground and the other is in the air. He'll help you. He's your helper. And don't have a casual, flaky relationship to the Bible. Begin to fill your heart and mind with Holy Scripture. Now, Father, we thank you that just as Jesus said, he would not leave us as orphans. But he sent the Spirit that we might be different kinds of people. Help us through answered prayer to give glory and honor to your name. Help someone listening to this message who's just outwardly religious but has never been born again to in simple childlike faith call upon the one who died for them, who was buried for them, who was raised for them. Help them in simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Some of you, you're here this morning. You have a decision you need to make. Maybe you've never openly, unashamedly confessed Jesus as Lord, done that by baptism. Or maybe you've been saved and baptized, but you need a church home. I want to invite you to step out as we come to the close of our service and meet me here in the front. Would you come, Matt? Would you lead us?